What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, simply the best podcast out there. Now let's kick this thing off. Today's episode is an interview between Darius Dale and Julia LaRoche. In it, they talk about the macro economy, the Federal Reserve, interest rates, monetary and fiscal policy, and what the hell is going on in the American economy. I really enjoyed listening to this episode, and I know that Darius and Julia really enjoyed actually recording it. I hope that you enjoy it as well. Before we get into this episode, though, I first want to talk about our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by BCB Group. With a dedicated focus on institutional payment services, BCB Group provides business banking, cryptocurrency, and foreign exchange market liquidity for many of the world's largest crypto-engaged financial institutions. BCB business accounts allow businesses to load fiat currency and cryptocurrencies for payments, operations, and trading purposes. BCB's clients can trade FX and cryptocurrencies quickly and at scale with market-leading value. BCB's Blink Network is the European crypto industry's first instant settlements network and one of the first real-time payment networks of its kind to allow free real-time transactions across fiat and digital currencies. BCB's vision is to empower the global financial revolution through sustainable and innovative banking. You can find out more by visiting bcbgroup.com slash pomp today. Again, if you want to learn more, go to bcbgroup.com slash pomp today. Today's episode is brought to you by Exodus, the world's leading desktop, mobile, and hardware crypto wallet. They offer beautiful, user-friendly blockchain products that sync across all of your devices, making it easier to send, receive, and exchange over 150 or more crypto assets in one place. And with world-class customer service available to you 24-7, Exodus always has your back. But the fun doesn't stop with staking and trading. They recently launched a new NFT marketplace where you can buy and sell your favorite NFTs on the Solana network. By partnering with the popular NFT platform, Magic Eden, they're offering the full Monty on verified collections with more added every single day. Ready to check it out for yourself? Run, don't walk over to exodus.com slash pomp for your free download today. Again, if you want the world's leading desktop, mobile, and hardware crypto wallet, go to exodus.com slash pomp today. This episode is brought to you by 8sleep. 8sleep is the single best product that I have purchased over the last three years. It completely changed my life. I'm not joking, pay attention. The Pod Pro cover, which goes over your mattress by 8sleep, is the most advanced solution on the market for thermoregulation. It pairs dynamic cooling and heating with biometric tracking. You can go to 8sleep.com slash pomp to check out the Pod Pro cover and you save $150 at checkout. They currently ship within the United States, Canada, and the UK. Now, I told you, it changed my life. It helps me sleep deeper, helps me sleep longer. I feel much more refreshed and I have better energy. You want to know how I have relentless energy every single day? It's because I sleep on an eight sleep. Seriously, go check it out. Eightsleep.com slash pomp today. Anthony Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All views of him and the guests on his podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right. Well, I'm excited to bring in our next guest. Uh, we have Darius Dale. He's the founder and CEO of 42 Macro. Uh, Darius, welcome to the show. Hey, Julie. What's up? How are you? I'm really excited to talk to you. Um, I, it's like something I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm just, it's uh, something I've always wanted to do. So um, <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah, I get to before like, we, watch Before we even get going, I think you need to tell Joe and John that we're currently running at an all-time high in the employment cost index. That's the broadest measure of wage inflation. So they might need to have a talk with their brother. <laughs> oh, they've been trying to unionize. I don't know if you've heard about that. But... Unionize? Yeah, I don't, I don't want to be in their work, union. But... 
<laughs> They're mad at me now. Um, oh <laughs> definitely will. All right. So um, we're closing out the quarter. We're closing out the first half of the year. Obviously, like markets have just been in a steep decline. Um, worst for the S&P about or such a close at the worst since, I don't know, since 1970. So um, it's been a, yeah, a long that? time. I would just love to start with like more of like your big picture of where we are in the markets and maybe your outlook ahead. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, for those who have been paying attention to the show, it's pretty uh, pretty straightforward. Uh, so I'll summarize everything. At 42 Macro, we believe that if you use enough data, use enough math, have enough of a repeatable process, you can sort of harness these sort of big macro cycles that tend to drive dispersion within and across asset markets and obviously take advantage of that uh, from a portfolio perspective. There's sort of, you know, we consider there to be four big cycles. There's the liquidity cycle. So as you know, you think about the Fed balance sheet or interest rates, is that getting more positive or favorable for asset markets or less favorable? Clearly, we're in a liquidity cycle downturn. Our views is we're close to, let's call it inning five or six on that. Um, you know, for those of you who are not Americans, uh, inning, baseball is played in nine innings. So you were probably, let's call it two thirds of the way done in terms of liquidity cycle downturn. Um, as it relates to the growth cycle, which is another important cycle, we're probably in inning four or five in the growth cycle downturn. It's set to uh, significantly uh, deepen uh, in the coming months, um, at least according to our forecast. Uh, we're probably in extra innings in the inflation cycle upturn, um, as evidenced by the most recent uh, PCE, headline PCE and, and, and headline CPI or CPI reports that we've gotten in recent weeks. And then lastly, I think we're probably close to inning one or two of the profits cycle downturn. What I mean by profits, we're talking about corporate profits, corporate earnings, the things that will drive, you know, incremental decisions, you know, going back to your previous discussion about, uh, you know, whether or not companies are spending more money on marketing, more money on hiring, et cetera. So uh, we are not in a favorable place to be speculating uh, on the long side of most risk assets as a function of those four uh, downturns. I, I, there's a lot of talk right now about, you know, are we in a recession? I will obviously find out when we get this second quarter GDP print, but what is kind of your thought process there? And like, how do you kind of think about that? Yeah. So uh, I say you guys some charts. Do you, are you able to put them yeah, up? Yeah, we can pull right? the charts up. Um, we, which yeah, one would you like so us to pull up? Maybe the the first um, one. So model, model implied probability. Yeah. Let's pull up the model, impl model implied probabilities chart if we can. Yeah. So this, uh, this first, so what we're trying to do with these charts is identify uh, whether or not we are in recession or likely headed to a recession over the medium term and in some investable time horizon, anything over a year is generally not uh, investable from a risk management perspective. They're going to be, you know, it's, you can talk about stuff from a year from now, but it's not going to really matter to markets. Um, so what I'm showing in this, um, in this top chart, uh, the blue line in the uh, upper panel just shows the New York Fed. That's the uh, Federal Reserve Bank of New York's recession implied probability model uh, down at 4%, 4 uh, probability of having a recession over the next uh, 12 months. Uh, one, I think that number is wrong, but two, it's uh, significantly lower than where it's typically at on a mean basis heading into recession, that number is around 27%. So typically right into a new you know, recession, that number is on average around 27%. So it uh, tells you well, a couple of things. It tells you one, um, at the onset of recession, even the recession probabilities are still generally low. So you need to have forward looking indicators to give you a better uh, view on that. And then number two, the red line in the upper panel just shows the uh, uh, model I put together just based on a couple of Bloomberg models that are anchoring on the tens twos treasury yield curve and the 10 year three month treasury yield curve, uh, that recession probability is currently around 25%. Historically, it's been on average around 35% at the onset of recession. So that's much closer to signaling, hey, look, we might actually be in recession. Uh, but to me, I think the discussion around recession is really coming from the consumer. 
Um, the second chart I sent you is uh, consumer confidence. Yeah, we can pull that up too. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the chart, uh, the top upper panel in that chart shows, uh, the blue line just shows uh, Converse Board's consumer confidence measure. That's sort of uh, one of the more stickier um, autocorrelated consumer confidence measures that we have. It tends to be more correlated to the labor cycle than the uh, University of Michigan survey, which is also widely followed. That tends to be more correlated to inflation. But the key takeaway on this chart is that historically, when you've seen consumer confidence break down below its trailing three-year average, um, you're typically in or just about heading into recession. And very clearly, with the most recent data point we got yesterday, uh, I want to say yesterday or two days ago, um, you know, 99, I think we're, you know, we're now careening well south of the trailing three-year average, which takes me to my final chart, um, consumer expectations. Um, you know, this, uh, this other chart, consumer expectations, uh, sort of breaks into a couple of different indices within that consumer confidence report. Um, again, these are, these are uh, June data points, so they're, they're pretty relevant, they're pretty fresh. Um, the red line in the top panel just shows the present situation index within that conference board consumer confidence report. The blue line shows the, the expectations index, so how do consumers think about what's likely to happen over the you know, medium term? And as you can see, there's, become, there's this massive divergence between how consumers think the economy is today, how they feel about the economy today relative to where they think the economy is going to be in the future, that's denoted by the spread there down at the bottom panel. Now that spread at you know, minus 80, 90 basis points wide to the negative side is about as deeply negative as it's ever been. You know, it's in the first percentile on uh, all the monthly uh, um, readings since going back to the late 60s when, this indicate, when these indicators were born. So that tells you that, you know, as you can see where those red bars are in the chart, historically speaking, when you get to a very deeply negative spread between consumers' expectations and how they currently feel about the economy, um, you typically are walking into a recession because that's typically how it happens, right? You start feeling bad about the future and therefore you adjust your current spending, your current um, expenditures, et cetera, to how you feel. And this is all part of the behavioral dynamic associated with, you know, economies and financial markets called prospect theory. We don't need to get into that now. Definitely go check out uh, Danny Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow, if you want more details on that. I like that. Um, and it's like, like the psychology of it. Um, I, I guess like a follow on to that, because like I'm looking at your models, like, is there a way to like assess, um, you know, how severe a recession might be? Like when you're looking at these in indicators, like how do you kind of think about like, is it like something that's quick? And I would love to explore that with you. Yeah, so the, that's a great question, Julie. So there's a, a couple of ways to do that on an ex-ante basis. Uh, one, you could sort of, you know, the, 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 the easiest way to do that is to try to understand kind of the different leverage cycle dynamics. The first would be how fast has credit grown into the downturn? Uh, historically speaking, whenever you see a significant positive deviation uh, in the in the credit to GDP metric, particularly private non-financial sector credit to GDP uh, into a downturn, that's what we saw in 2007, um, you typically get a more deeper, nastier kind of asset price-led recession that takes longer to recover from. Uh, a second way to uh, explore that on an ex-ante basis is looking at the, uh, looking to observe if you have a positive deviation, a significantly positive deviation uh, from the trend in what we call the debt service ratio. So that's the total amount of sort of interest payments and amortization um, or paying back debt, um, you know, for the broader private non-financial sector. And, and currently speaking, neither of those two um, indicators are signaling kind of um, calls for significant alarm, i.e. neither are suggesting that we're likely to have a deep, lasty, prolonged, protracted recession, which is a good thing. Now, the one thing I'll, I'll caveat this by saying, you know, the data that, you know, we get this, uh, the, we derive those statistics from are released on a pretty severe lag. So we're talking about Q4 21 statistics, and it's obviously the end of the second quarter of 2022. So fast forward six months from now, we could be getting statistics for the second quarter of this year that may uh, say otherwise. But for now, 
um, just being data driven, we can understand that any recession we are likely to experience over the next 12 months or so uh, should be shallow, should, in my opinion, I think it's more likely to resemble the uh, 2001 recession, which was, you know, you got to, you need a magnifying glass to, you know, kind of really see it on the map. It was one, it was the shallowest recession in U.S. economic history at, at peak the trough decline and output of minus 70 basis points. But guess what? That didn't matter to the market. S&P was cut in half. NASDAQ was down 80% in the span of that, uh, you know, two and a half year bear market. Um, so you have to be careful not to associate your expected outcomes in financial market terms with your expected outcomes in economic terms. The destination doesn't have to be the same, but the rate of change is likely to sort of perpetuate um, and feed upon each other. That's interesting. You say it, it, like the, that didn't matter to the market. Like also just kind of makes me wonder, um, like say we find out like in the, we get the Q2 GDP um, number and it's like, okay, like you have two consecutive quarters um, of negative um, GDP growth. Like, do, do you think the market's kind of priced in that scenario or like, is there further to go here? Um, what do you think? Yeah, great question. Great question. So, so I'll start by, uh, there's two things to unpack there. I'll start with the first part of your question, which is the two consecutive quarters of negative GDP. That would constitute a technical recession by the letter of the law. Two consecutive quarters of contraction is a technical recession. That will not constitute an actual recession by the sort of market and by the Federal Reserve and certainly by the people who determine whether or not the economy has been in recession, which is the MBER. You know, their definition is more along the lines of my definition of recession, which is a statistically significant deviation, negative deviation from the trend in output. Um, you can measure output, obviously, through GDP, industrial production, consumer spending, consumer income, total employment. All those things tend to be correlated to the downside and a significant um, deviation from their respective trends. Um, we have not seen that yet. However, when you go back and you think about it from a technical recession standpoint, we are certainly developing that one. I mean, we got the PCE data, the personal consumption's expenditure data point for the month of May this morning, and it was it was pretty bad. I, I, it was very bad, actually. Uh, we talked about that in our Macro Minute program. Um, check out our YouTube channel, by the way, for those of you who don't pay attention to those. But um, anyway, so the, on a headline basis, so aggregate consumer spending in the economy, um, which is two-thirds of overall GDP, you know, um, you know slowed to 0.2% on a three month annualized basis through the month of May. And so if we stay around these levels or if it gets you know, any worse for the month of June, we will have negative consumption growth uh, on a three month annualized basis or on a quarter over quarter basis um, in the second quarter. Um, that's being uh, dragged down by goods consumption, uh, which is down 1.4% on a three month annualized basis. Services consumption is up at 1%, but guess what? 1% ain't gonna cut it. One, that's half the trend growth rate. And number two, we're supposed to be in the middle of a services sector boom, right? I mean, how many stories have we heard about, you know, the pandemic being over, getting on airplanes, we're going on a vacation, we're going out to eat, you know, we're going to the theater, et cetera, et cetera. And guess what? All that, all that, that narrative adds up to a mere one percentage point um, growth rate um, in three-month annualized terms for service consumption. So, you know, we continue to see consumers get squeezed from a real income perspective. You know, real incomes have been basically trending at down 4% year over year for the last year um, on either a aggregate or a per capita basis. And so, you know, in our opinion, the data is starting to get nasty enough to start pondering the question, are we currently in recession? Or are we, you know, getting close to entering one? And I think the, the jury, the, the sort of, um, you know, the answer to that question certainly moved in the direction of recession very much in the last kind of three, two to three hours. I think that's why, like, I, I love, like, listening to you because I feel like I always learn things, too. And you point out, yeah, like, there's been that narrative, like, oh, it's a services boom. But as you point out, uh, probably not the case, um, as it turns out. Um I want to ask you about inflation too. Like you mentioned, we got the the PC this morning. It was it was bad, and I know that's a gauge that the Fed does look at. Like, 
how do you think about inflation? Like, is it systemic? Is it abating? Like, I just wonder, like, how you kind of begin to assess that. Yeah, so inflation is very much systemic. There's a, uh, several ways we can assess that, uh, not the least of which is the data we got from this morning's report. Uh, we saw an acceleration in headline PCE inflation, um, both the three-month annualized and year-over-year rate of change terms. So that was a problem. Uh, we saw a re-acceleration in three-month annualized terms in core PCE, which is the Fed's preferred inflation metric at 4.1%. It's basically a double of where the Fed needs it to be. So that's a problem from the liquidity perspective of the liquidity cycle. But uh, to answer your question specifically on is inflation systemic? The answer is unequivocally yes. The Cleveland Fed has, a, has an index uh, called median CPI, which measures the median rate of change in inflation terms for everything in the inflation basket. There's hundreds you know, of, of indicators in the inflation basket. And what we're seeing on a median basis, not on a weighted basis, on a median basis, inflation accelerate to new all-time highs. 5.5% on a year-over-year basis, that's a new all-time high in May. 6.4% on a three-month annualized basis, that's a new all-time high for that time series. So to answer your question, yes, we are very much in a systemic broadening inflation um, shock um, that ultimately we think the Fed is going to uh, stick to its guns and do something about. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the Fed and um, sticking to its guns. Jay Powell, we had comments from Jay Powell this week. Um, we also heard from Christine Lagarde. Uh, we heard from uh, BOE's Andrew Bailey. Like, Just kind of would love to hear your reaction from what we're hearing from central banks um, as it relates to some of these issues. Yeah, so I thought Jay Powell, so was that yesterday, Wednesday, yeah, at yeah. the ECB forum, uh, Jay Powell uh, really stood out to me, one, in his tone, but also he made a very important direct comment uh, to financial market participants and investors, you know, to, to everyone in the economy. And it was, you know, it was very basic. Look, we are going to do whatever it takes to get inflation back to our 2% target. That process will involve some pain, but that it will be a worse, that will be a less of a pain than just not achieving our objective, right? So he's basically saying if we allow inflation to stick around here, more people, particularly people on the low end of the, the income spectrum, are going to get, you know, they already feel like it's a, it's a recession for them already, by the way. You know, some, some 10 to 20, 30 percent of the economy is already in recession just as a function of their income level. And so what he's effectively saying is, look, it's going to be bad no matter what. And right now, if we allow inflation to continue to fester, it's going to be bad for the largest number of people for the longest period of time as opposed to just going, you know, tightening us into a significant enough slowdown in output to get us to a more um, balanced supply and demand spectrum that that will ultimately give us better outcomes on the inflation front. So I thought that was about as direct as I've ever heard a central banker talk. Usually, sorry, I take that back, in hawkish terms. When they talk, usually they're very direct when they're talking about stimulating, right? Because they want to prevent deflation. They want asset markets to go up. They want to revive animal spirits. It's very rare that these people talk so directly and frankly when they're actually trying to, for lack of a better term, beat asset markets with a wooden stick. Yeah. I've been making this joke that Powell's got this aluminum bat. He's like a 12-year-old at a birthday party with the aluminum bat taking it to the pinata, and he doesn't even have a blindfold on. So he's just beating the crap out of the pinata until this dang thing breaks, i.e. inflation. He's going to keep beating the pinata. Yeah, all the candy is going to be the inflation. That's a... (laughs) Interesting yeah. visual. Um, you just mentioned like him being direct, like just as a market participant, someone who's been in this business for a while. Like, I mean, I, I imagine like your peer group also was feeling similar things. Like you probably want him to be more direct. I'd imagine. Like, do you think that that's the kind of pal we're going to get going forward? Yeah. I mean, well, well so, so to answer, and sort of dating myself, I, I found out today I have a bald spot on my head. <laughs> oh my God. I didn't know that. So I guess I have been in this industry for I've a while. I've been in it for a while too. But. <laughs> <laughs> so that's neither here nor there. But yeah, so the answer is yes. Um, this is a Federal Reserve. Don't forget, I, I made this comment on this program many times for the last, you know, six, nine months. 
that this is a Federal Reserve that is fighting two wars, not one war. It's not just inflation. They're fighting the war of credibility as well. Right. Like they spent all of last year aggressively easing, aggressively expanding their balance sheet to the tune of one hundred and twenty billion dollars of QE per month as inflation was continuing to fester with this sort of narrative that it was going to be transitory. One of the worst calls in, in financial market history, let alone one of the worst calls for the central bank. So now they're fighting to regain the credibility associated with getting the inflation call so wrong, that call that, that was so wrong that is currently roiling, you know, sort of the, the, the budgets of so many millions of American households right now. You know, if you, I, everybody watching, many of the people watching this show, uh, you know, inflation is a, a no, it's nuisance for a lot of us. It's not a new, I, I grew up very poor. It's not a nuisance when you're poor. It is a life altering event. You have to stop consuming. You trade down, even though you're already at the low end of the trade down spectrum. I mean, if you're buying bag cereal because you can't afford box cereal, now you're no longer buying cereal. That's what 8.6% inflation does in this country. I'm not sure that everyone understands that. It's a really important point that you bring up, like how it affects um, like lower income American. You just gave that, that example. Like, Let's explore that further. What could be some of the broader consequences of that? Like, What could that mean for like maybe even like the social fabric of our country? So, I mean, as you can see, it's being clearly reflected in, in Joe Biden's uh, approval rating on uh, the broader approval rating of Congress. You know, obviously there's a lot going on down there. So let's, you know, we get too far into that. But, you know, it's clearly an issue. I mean, this is the, this is the key takeaway. And it's somebody I, I, I'm going to misquote or misassign the quote, but it was one of the most um, sort of one of the most interesting things I heard about inflation all year. And I'm, I apologize for who I'm still in school from. I'll remind everyone next Thursday. But they said, and I thought I agreed with it, and I realized, oh, my God, this is what Powell thinks. And the quote is, when you go into recession, you know, the unemployment rate backs up two, three, you know, four, four, at, a, at, a, at worst, you know, four or 500 basis points. So that's, you know, that percentage of people in an economy are going to have that, that, that hard time. When you have a significant inflation shock, 100% of the American citizens are dealing with it right now. So we're talking about, you know, a recession being this big boogeyman that may only impact, you know, significantly impact, you know, let's call it three to 5% of the economy, as opposed to this inflation, which is currently impacting, you know, you know, skimming off the top of rich people who don't even notice, you know, at least 90% of the economy. So I think that's the battle they're fighting. And it, to me, it's a, it's a much more common sense battle. Yeah. Um, let's see, I'm trying to think what's, let's kind of pivot a little bit and just bring up some other um, topics just because I think it's interesting. Like I like at the top of this, you go over like the indicators that you pay attention to. Um, what are kind of maybe more of the underrated signals that you look to or pay attention to that could be helpful for folks watching? Uh, so, I mean, you know, anybody who's subscribed to our work, seen my work over the years or my career, you know, there's not any, we look at everything. I mean, if there's a statistic that matters to financial markets or that matters to predicting GDP, to predicting CPI, to predicting, you know, eventually inflections in the liquidity cycle, then we're analyzing it. I mean, our, our now cast models have thousands of data points in them from a, from a fundamental standpoint. Our market regime model has hundreds, no, sorry, 1,048 data points in it on a daily basis to identify what market regime we're in. You know, this is, you know, we run serious models at 42 Macro. So I, I don't want to give your listeners the, the sort of the, the sense that, oh, there's one or two things you can look at to do this at a high level because there's not. You know, it's a full-time job to, 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 to be average at this industry, average at what we're trying to get accomplished here. And knock on wood, we've been a lot better than the average this year. Totally. Fair enough. Um, and then also kind of going back to when you were showing the models, um, like how the there when you had your first chart, 
how the one was kind of like totally off? Like, what are they missing though in the model? Like, what is what is it that's not in there? Well, so right now you have a pretty, uh, the number one thing that will tell you that we're unlikely to be in, two things uh, that'll tell you we're unlikely to be in a recession right now is, is, is corporate profitability. Historically speaking, you've seen sort of a significant decline in corporate profitability during recession. So on a trailing 12 month basis, that is very much not the case. We have some pretty robust earnings growth on a, on a look back basis. And then second, the, uh, the yield curve that is typically associated with, you know, timing recessions, which is the 10 year, three month treasury yield curve, um, that continues to be very positively sloped, you know, very wide uh, yield curve, uh, you know, very wide, you know, wide uh, yield curve uh, on that measure. So that continues to tell investors that, hey, look, if we are going to recession, it's 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 a ways away. It's a year away at, at best, if not, you know, maybe even two years away as a function of that. But, you know, I have the belief that if you get into a significant slowdown in growth, which is what our models are forecasting for, you know, really the better part of the third quarter and really into well into the early part of next year, once we start to observe the economic statistics associated with that significant decline in output, then you're very much likely to start to see a rally in the long end of the uh, treasury curve while the Fed is continuing to hike. And that's how you can eventually get that inversion, perhaps by the end of the year. Okay. Um, how about in terms of, I'm just thinking back to from the beginning of our conversation, um, I, I guess I, I, I wrote down a couple notes here, but you know, anything over a year not being investable, when you're kind of going over like the big cycles that we're in, um, from an investment. Oh, it's not that it's not investable. It's just the market won't give a damn. Yeah. You know, when you um, talk about the, you know the market's response to the growth cycle, the inflation cycle, the profit cycle, and most importantly the liquidity cycle, you when we I mean we've back tested this as, as well as anyone I've seen. I mean certainly we don't have the opportunity to look at everyone's buy side process, but certainly I can observe what's happening on the sell side, and I think we have some of the best back tests in the world. And our back tests show that once you get beyond three months, you know in terms of you know a, a look forward. Markets don't really have any response to those kinds of dynamics, right? And so if you're talking about like liquidity cycle, growth cycle, pow, inflation growth, having an impact on asset markets, it's usually within the next few months that the market is trying to, you know, fill around and price in. It's not the next two to three years, you know, the, you know that stuff will happen along the way. You know, the catalysts are, you know, drive you higher, or drive you lower along the way. That's a good point. Yeah, it's happening, um, I guess, much more, I guess, closer to where we are. Uh, than than further out. Um, I do want to just ask, like maybe um, from an investment perspective, like I don't, I don't know if you could share, like, like what where would you want to be, like right now, like. Yeah, I mean, so uh, you know, out of respect for our paying subscribers, and we're very appreciative of them. You know, I'm not going to give too specific of advice, but you know, one thing I'll say, um, you know, just uh, something I've been saying in the program all year, which is cash is king in an environment like this. You don't need, when you're in a, a simultaneous liquidity cycle downturn, growth cycle downturn, and profit cycle downturn, you know, few things in, in the history of asset markets are as negative for risk assets as those things being, you know, in that state, in that condition all at the same time. And so, you know, if you came into the year looking backwards, you know, we were in a growth cycle upturn, liquidity cycle upturn, everything, it was the liquidity bonanza. I mean, it wasn't an upturn, it was a bonanza, some of the most aggressive easing we've ever seen. Um, out of the Federal Reserve in the history of that institution. You know, so it's, it was, you know, if you were, whatever risk you were running, whatever, you know, capital risk you were running in that environment, it needs to be significantly curtailed to risk manage this environment. I mean, just be, just have less risk on is the number one, the answer to your question. Then obviously, you know, which is a call we made going back to November of last year, the higher beta, the more volatile, the things that go up the most when the market's going up the most tend to go down the most when the market's going down. And so we made a call to, hey, say, hey, 
If you have a lot of high beta assets in your portfolio, you need to get rid of them because the market is going to sell them. And ultimately, obviously, it continues to sell them to this day. Yeah. Um, I want to bring it up with you just because of like, you know, the makeup of our audiences, just like kind of your views on, I don't know if you, what your latest is on Bitcoin. I'm just looking at the price right now. It's just under 19,000. So it's 18,930 and some change right now. What are your kind of your views? Just, it's, I think it's on track. It's going to be, it's, I want to say it's like worst month, at least in a long time. So worst quarter since 2011. There you go. See? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so Bitcoin, I, I'm, I'm concerned. Uh, I mean, I don't want to scare. I know this is a Bitcoin friendly program. I myself am a Bitcoiner. Um, but I'm definitely concerned. And here's why, you know, we made a call going back to April that we thought the support, support for Bitcoin, where you would back the truck up and buy it was 19,000. Uh, I am shocked that we are here so fast. I am absolutely shocked that we have gotten down here so quickly. And that tells me that if 19,000 doesn't hold, I don't know, pick up, pick a round number, 15,000, 10,000. I don't know. I don't, there is no support once you break 19,000, at least not in terms of our analysis. And so, you know, we talk about this liquidity cycle downturn. Let's not forget that we're only doing about half the total amount of quantitative tightening that the Fed intends to initiate, you know, in, in, over the course of the medium term. So by September, we're going to double the pace of quantitative tightening from draining 45 billion, uh, 45 billion of, 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 of liquidity out of the market, for lack of a better phrase, um, to 95 billion. Um, that's, that's, as fat, that's like as fast as the Fed has ever drained liquidity from the market by a double. And so my point I'm bringing up is that when you factor that in, you factor in the overcapitalization of the treasury as a function of, you know, the, and the T-bill the shortage as a result of that, and ultimately the, the, the rapidly rising uptake in the Fed's reverse repo facility balance, all these dynamics are, cat, are sort of combining to drain massive amounts of liquidity from financial markets. And so if you do, do the math on our analysis, you know, we get to about, you know, basically, you know, just shy of a trillion dollars of liquidity is going to get drained from financial markets between now and year end if the Fed stays on this course and if the dynamics with the reverse repo facility don't materially change. If that happens, fair value on the S&P 500 is 2,900. So guess where Bitcoin is going to be on a correlation weighted basis if the market declines uh, significantly from here? I'm just looking right now. Um, we, you said a trillion? It's well, $915 billion to be exact, so. Sorry. Okay. Okay. I know. I'm. I, and I guess like the quick following question too. Like when you talk about the liquidity cycle downturn, you said the top of this program, we're in the fifth or sixth inning. Um, does it accelerate over time? Does it get like as you go through that cycle? Like how does that kind of how does that play out? Is it like a smooth thing, or does it just like spiral and get worse and worse as you get further in the cycle? I love for it to be smooth, but the reality is, yeah, we get before thirty in the morning every day because it's not smooth. It's nonlinear. Uh, markets are, you know, they're dynamic ecosystems. And so the reality is, you know, one acceleration in one factor can lead to a deceleration in another factor and vice versa. One thing we know we're going to get is we're very likely to get a, a, a reduction in the size of rate increases, particularly as we get past this July 27th FOMC meeting. I'm not so sure we're going to get another 75 basis point rate hike. I mean, maybe it's 75, but I think, you know, by the time we get there, it could be 50 if we get a couple of decent inflation prints. We get uh, June CPI on the 13th. Maybe we get some uh, decline, significant decline in crude oil into the summertime, potentially. I don't know. I'm not making that call. Um, that could cause the Fed to go to 50 in July 27. But the reality is, you know, we're not going to stick at 75, 75, 75. That's unlikely. Um, so, you know, we're going to see a slowdown in the, in, the, in the pace of rate hikes. But we're at the same time, we're going to get an acceleration in the, the, the quantitative tightening program. So, you know, on net, generally speaking, quantitative tightening has a more of a near term sort of 
coincident impact on asset markets, QE and QT, than interest rate hikes uh, and interest rate cuts. Mm -hmm. Just like on, uh, you mentioned the inflation print, do you have like a kind of a number in mind? Like, I don't, I don't know if we actually mentioned a specific number, but what are you kind of thinking there? For headline CPI, we are at, sorry, pull up our estimates now. We're sticking at 8.6 for June, okay. or yeah, sorry, yeah, for June, yeah. So that number will be out on um, on July 13th. Gotcha. Um, any parting thoughts before I let you go? Yeah, um, this is this is not the time to be cavalier. Um, I know a lot of folks have um, probably this first half of the year has not gone the way they probably hoped, and that's okay. Um, you know, not everything in life is going to go the way you hope, but the most important you know thing you need to make is you need to make a decision and determination on what is your next play. You know, sometimes you give up a sack, sometimes you give up a touchdown, but at the end of the day, the game is not over. You have to make a decision on how to regroup, refocus your, reallocate your focus budget so that you can take advantage of the next series of opportunities and catalysts and markets. And if you don't know what those opportunities and catalysts are, then come check us out at 42 Macro. If not, just uh, we'll catch you back here next week. I love that. Well, I was going to ask you, where can folks find you online? So you mentioned 42 Macro. Uh, let Yeah, let folks know where they can find you and learn more. Yeah, so uh, come check us out at 42macro.com if you're a serious investor. And what I mean by serious investor is someone who has legitimate investment objectives, you know, serious size in terms of their asset allocation, in terms of their capital risk. Um, you can be professional, you can be non-professional, you know, both, obviously, as, as, as subscribers. And if then, you know, obviously, if you're either a non-serious investor, someone who can't afford it, college student, et cetera, then come follow us on Twitter. You know, we put out a lot of research on our uh, YouTube channel as well. So, you know, we definitely have something for everybody, but I, I definitely think this is the time where, if you don't have a legitimate macro process heading into the second half of this year, you will struggle. That's a guarantee. Yeah. They can also find you on Twitter as well. We just uh, yeah. showed your handle. 42 Macro Details, my handle. Amazing. Well, Darius Dale, founder and CEO of 42 Macro, I thank you so much for your time and your fascinating um, discussion and just also the way you end things with like those parting words of wisdom for everyone really puts things in perspective. So thanks again. Of course, Julia. Look forward to it uh, next time. Cheers. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. I really hope you guys enjoyed this one. Make sure you're subscribed on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. And if you're looking to try to transition to get a new job in the Bitcoin or crypto industry, we've got you covered. Head over to pompscryptocourse.com. We've developed a curriculum with the top teams across the industry. It's a three-week intensive training program with over 50 events packed into that three-week time period. Go to pompscryptocourse.com to learn more, and I'll meet you guys for the next episode.